you still remember the book of Samuel, but uh, in case you don't, I want to summarize the content of the book up until the point where we are right now, uh, so that we get the context, we understand the place uh, where this takes uh, is happening, and so that we understand what the Lord is doing in this passage. The book of Samuel comes at a junction uh, in the political life of Israel. The history of the people of God at this time was not really great. It wasn't indeed the best of times. They were struggling. The conquest of the promised land after they left Egypt uh, was still very much that. It was a promise. The land was still... Uh, unconquered in many places. There was still the threat of the Philistines and on one side of the Amorites on the other. And the book follows, and is still very much in the, uh, where we are at the moment, uh, the rule of the judges, or the book of judges and the rule of the judges. In fact, Samuel is the last of the judges. And we all know that ominous uh, refrain all throughout the book of judges. Three, four times we, we have it said or we read of it in the book of Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in their own eyes this period of history this period of history is one that is marked by this successive up and down like a roller coaster or uh, this uh, never ending vicious cycle of the the people uh, declining in their faithfulness to God uh, and therefore coming under, uh, under judgment and God giving them a judge that uh, calls the people back in repentance and, and delivers them only for them through a generation later be, uh, do exactly the same thing again. It's this never endless cycle of war and peace. This cyclical pattern of rebellion, retribution, repentance and rescue that defines the book of Judges that we are still seeing uh, playing out at the beginning of 1 Samuel. At the start of 1 Samuel, we have this glimmer of hope, this uh, 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 glimmer of hope in the, in, the, in the midst of this spiritual darkness that have, uh, befell uh, upon the people of God. This woman, this barren uh, woman named Hannah, she pours out her, her heart uh, to the Lord in prayer, pleading to, uh, to him for a son. And, and the Lord hears her. And he gives her a son named Samuel. That means uh, asked of God. And Samuel grows up, uh, even in a young age, but grows up to be a wonderful leader to the people. And under his guidance, Israel transitions from the tumultuous times of the judges to a nation uh, that is now seeking a more permanent leadership. Hence, they have this desire for a king. So, however, intertwined in this history, in the times of Samuel, there are still ups and downs. As we remember, we, we looked last, uh, when we were considering this passage uh, a few months ago, the, the, from Samuel 4 to 1 Samuel 7, the, the Ark of the Covenant being taken away and how the Lord fought the battle, and how the Lord came out victorious by his own hand. And yet, after all that, years have passed, 
and they are still struggling. In our text this evening, we are reminded that they are still struggling with insecurities. And we are reminded, in fact, that the issues that Israel grappled with are, just, uh, are not just ancient history. Things that happened many, many centuries ago. They are things that still happen in our own day. They resonate deeply with our own struggles. Who defines or how do we define who we are as the people of God? That was the question that we were, that is the question that we are considering today. Where do we flee for security? I must say this because it is a, a tendency that is uh, very much uh, all around us in, in our society is the, the need to feel secure. Finding a secure place, a, sa a stable uh, position, a stable future for ourselves and for our loved ones. And the question is, how do we achieve that? How do we find security? How do we find peace? And how do we find uh, a stable ground on which to stand? What is it that gives us that security? In the case of the Israelites, as we'll see, was the, a human king that would fight their battles. They would slay the Philistines. Eventually, they said it was the tallest man in the, in the whole of Israel. That was the, their, their, their qualification to be the king. We want the tallest one. Funnily enough, as we will see, ironically enough, as we'll see uh, later on, there uh, shows up uh, up the camp of the Philistines, someone who is even taller than, than Saul. Um, but that's for uh, a, a comment for another occasion. But what is it for us? Relationships? Is it a stable job? Is it our health that provides us security? As long as we're healthy, strong, and, and capable, we're secure. Have we amassed sufficient social capital, clout, goodwill? Where is it that we put our faith in? Where is it that we flee for security? Have you taken enough steps that you feel safe? Have you put enough locks on your door? Have you uh, taken enough insurance policies? Have you voted for the right political candidate? You see, that is the problem, isn't it? There is this strain constantly thrust upon everyone in every place, in the, especially in the West, but in the world uh, at large. Forces pulling us and tugging at us that we would trust them, particularly in the political arena. And that's true of both sides of the aisle, of, of left and right. They're all the same in this regard. They, they, they play on our insecurities in order to win a vote. But that is true in the, in the, in the commercial realm, when they're trying to sell you something, some health benefit. Oh, this, this vitamin, this will, will surely fix your problem. Or, or this insurance policy, this, this will certainly put your mind at ease. Not too long ago, was, uh, people were buying, uh, not too long ago is, is a relative term, decades ago, people were buying bomb shelters because they were afraid that a nuclear attack would come. I'm sure this was true here in the UK as well, but certainly true in, uh, in the United States. still is in a sense that the people that prefer to build underground bunkers because they're afraid uh, 
was about to come, and it never came. And the question is, were they foolish, or were the other people who didn't get it just lucky? That is the problem. Everyone fights for our, uh, fights for our attention. The voices that urge us to pursue uh, this or that way. That's very much the appeal of populist politicians. They play on the insecurities and the uncertainties of, uh, of the people so that they get a, little, uh, a few more votes. And the paradox, the great problem, and this is a long-winded way of, of bringing us to this point, the paradox is that we don't really know what security is. We struggle to gauge how, what, uh, if our efforts are enough, but the reality is we don't even know what the end goal is of security. And yet we inherently expect political, social leaders to tell us, to offer us some kind of protection, to provide for us some kind of safe environment. That is very much what's happening here. There are these pulling and tugging uh, of, of the world in the heart of the people of God. Samuel's Ebenezer that we considered the last time in Samuel 7, the Ebenezer that, that was raised, that was meant to be a martyr up until now, the Lord has helped us. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. All of those memories of that Ebenezer have faded away. The generation that perhaps saw the great deliverance, if it's not gone uh, completely, has largely uh, been uh, substituted, replaced by a new generation that only knows of these stories as hearsay, secondhand accounts. God's past miracle for them are just that, stories, things that the Lord has done in the past. They're no longer a present reality. They're no longer uh, impactful. They're in some way, even if they didn't doubt their reality, they're less real uh, to them. So now they want a leader. The value of having God as their king, the value of having God as their ruler, as the one who fights their battles, diminishes, especially because of the challenges that they are facing. What are the challenges? Three points we will consider this evening. First, a progenic problem, a problem in, with the progeny. Secondly, the prayer of the prophet or the people's plea. Thirdly, and it's four points, I'm, I apologize, the prophet's prayer. And fourthly, the prescribed proclamation. So firstly, there is a problem. Chapter 8 kind of fast forwards us from chapter 7 a, a good number of years. We're not told how many, but by, by this time, as we get to chapter 8, Samuel is of old age. He's getting on in his years. He's no longer the young, up-and-coming ruler, judge of the nation. He's old, and he's probably weak. This stands in contrast, doesn't it, with how he was in the past. And there are three factors here that make the people yearn for a change of the status quo. 
Number one, it's the age of Samuel. Samuel is old. That's what we read there. They come to him. They say to him, look, you are old. <laughs> I don't know how, how people feel about this, but it, when you're old, if people come to you and say you're old, you, you, you can really, I didn't notice. But that's the, the situation here. They come to, to Samuel and they say, you're old. Thank you very much for that information. Now, tell me something I don't know. But that is a problem. Because with old age comes a, 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 a different kind of uh, a capacity. And I want to be really careful here because I realize I'm preaching to a congregation that, that is older than me. And I don't want to sound insensitive. But with older age comes a, 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 a difficulty at times to fight for some things that otherwise when you were younger you would, would be able to fight. I don't think I'm being unfair or insensitive. I think that is quite clearly seen in the political arena. That is quite clearly seen in, in churches, in, in the church uh, 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 political sphere as well. So often the case that uh, a young man uh, filled with zeal for the Lord preaches when he's younger and in his middle age with with zeal and he's, uh, he's uh, willing to put his neck on the line and to, and to fight uh, and to stand alone like Augustine uh, alone against the world and yet it is so often the case that these men, I, I find myself sometimes disappointed and I pray that the Lord would take me before this happens but I, some men that I've looked up to uh, through the years uh, as uh, examples when they get older they seem to lose that willingness to stand not all of them uh, notable exceptions but many of them some psychologists say that that is connected with the with the uh, diminishing of the, the testosterone or of the hormone the, the, uh, that causes them to be less uh, aggressive and less uh, controversial and polemical that is the, the situation here and before I say anything else, just so I, uh, you don't get me wrong, with old age also comes a lot of good benefits, and God has ordered them to be so. There is this wonderful book by uh, Derek Prime, The Good Old Age, a, a fitting title, uh, A Good Old Age, uh, and he comments on how old age is a good thing in many ways, in ways that young age uh, will never aspire he says let me just read from to you from his introduction he says old age may alarm us i can bring you it can bring humiliating experiences experiences some of its limitations take away our natural dignity worse still is the daunting possibility of dementia even to the point where we may not remember our name and then he says this, for while there may be a bad old age when we feel way down with the years, there is also a good old age to which we may aspire. And every period of life has its appointed benefits and excellence, as Solomon would put it. So one of the problems for the people of God, the elders of Israel, is that Samuel is getting on with years. And they want a judge that would uh, be fierce and uh, 
demand respect of the enemy of their enemies and an old man uh, with a with a cane seemingly wouldn't be the the right uh, person but there's also a problem with his strategy we read there don't we he has a strategy he called his sons in an attempt to solve perhaps some of the problems that were posed by his old age Samuel decides to appoint his sons, Joel and Abijah, to be jo judges in Bathsheba. And it's very much like Eli, the situation with Eli in, in the beginning of Samuel. Eli had two sons, uh, and, they, and they were going to replace him. The problem here is that the priestly uh, office was one that was hereditary, one that uh, the, the baton passes from, from the father to the son. But in the case of the judges, there was no such thing. Famously, Gideon uh, refused to allow his son to follow uh, after his footsteps, saying that only God, or he refused to the idea of becoming uh, a king because he said that only God should rule over the people. But the question is, regarding Samuel, was he right in doing this? Was Samuel correct calling up his sons to judge over Israel in Bathsheba. Was this some form of nepotism or some form of a monarchical succession? Was, uh, was Samuel trying to, uh, by the way of the horse, not to say in Portugal, by, by a, a shortcut, establish a monarchy and a dynasty in his name? I don't think. That, that, that that's the case with Samuel. Samuel's decision, don't get me wrong, is not cast in a very good light, but it's not the same situation as the sons of Eli, uh, Eli and his sons. It seems to me that the situation here with, with Samuel seems to be implied by the fact that they're ruling in separate regions, one very far away from the other, is that Samuel wanted to judge over Ramah and because he wanted justice to be extended over the, 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 the greatest span of uh, the re greatest region, uh, he, he put his sons judging over another region so that justice would cover uh, the whole area. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Samuel gets a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card here. But it seems to me that it's not so much that he was trying to set up his children uh, in, a, in a position of power, but that he was trying pragmatically to extend justice across the land in a rather uh, foolish way. But the problem is, it didn't work. The problem is that very much uh, um, in like Eli's uh, son's situation, Samuel's sons are corrupt. They bend justice for personal gain. Uh, it says there they, that they... They turned aside after this honest gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. And I hear the, the dishonest gain, the, the, the undertone of the Hebrew word is one of violence. It's not so much a, 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 a victimless crime or something like that. It, it is one of, they were usurping their position, taking, taking bribes, perverting justice, highlighting for us the severity of their corruption. And the key takeaway of this part, as we consider these three points that have caused the people to call for a, for a change in the status quo, the key takeaway 
is that Israel's well-being cannot be assured by the sense of even the most esteemed leader that they've had in years. And the same is true of us. How many sons of great preachers have gone on to, to maybe uh, make a bad name of their, uh, of, their, of their family. Giftedness is not hereditary. But this is the reason why the people were asking for this. And they come and they request. They were worried about the leadership. They were worried about the enemies around. They, they, they come, the, the, the elders, the, the rulers, the senior figures, they approach Samuel and they say, look, you're getting old, your sons are not following your example. Give us a king. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And the question here is, is quite simple. As I was considering this passage, is, is their request wrong? Well, we know it is wrong because we've, we've, uh, we've already read the, the following verses. God himself says that their request is wrong. But in what ways were they wrong? Were they wrong to ask for a king? Immediately, perhaps because we read the context, we might consider and say, yes, they shouldn't have asked for a king. But then when you read the Old Testament, leading at the story of the Old Testament, leading up to Samuel, you realize that a desire for a king is not necessarily a sinful desire. What was it that was promised to the patriarchs, to Abraham in particular, that out of his seed kings would come? What is it that was promised to Judah, a scepter? There is, there is this ongoing idea in the Old Testament that God would, in some way, establish a king, even at this early age. Deuteronomy uh, 17 speaks of this. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but it says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, this is Moses, uh, under the inspiration of uh, uh, the Spirit of God, uh, uh, anticipating this request, and you possess it and you dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. The point being that the request for a king was not necessarily a bad request. In fact, you could conjecture that a, a faithful Jewish believer would be praying to the Lord that the Lord would establish a king. In fact, when you read through Judges, there is this sense of this yearning uh, that there is a need for a, a, an ultimate king, a, a king that would establish order finally. So the problem isn't so much that they were requesting a king. It's something else in their motivation to request a king. And, and clearly, this request was deficient. And I think the problem is that they wanted to be like the other nations. Their sense of security was not in having God as their king or waiting for God's chosen king, the one that God chooses. Their problem is that they wanted to be like the world. They re firmly rejected their status as a holy people, a people set apart, a people different from every other nation in the world. 
They wanted to be like the other nations. If you, if you turn just quickly to uh, 1 Samuel, back to 1 Samuel uh, 8, verse 20, it clearly says there, doesn't it? Verse 20, that we may also be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Who is it that fights your battles, Israel? You see, the, the Israelites here demonstrate something that is so common in our way of doing things. We choose a way pragmatically, something that temporal pragmatics, right? I could give endless examples of seeing this happen in my own life, in, in the life of the church, where pragmatically we choose a, a way we want to go, and then, we'll, then what we do as Christians. We try and find a Bible verse that fits our predefined commitment. I don't like this. Let me find a verse that, that confirms this. Or I want to do this. Let me find a verse that, 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 that pushes me forward or that uh, uh, condones this behavior of mine. Kind of like Jonah. He hears the voice of God calling him to go to Nineveh. He goes the other direction, and then he finds a boat. Oh, well, it's, it's clearly God telling me that what I'm doing is right. And he presses on. But that's the situation, isn't it? We dress up our sinful behaviors with a Bible verse and call it a day. The problem is that, that God's eye penetrates through the fog of all these Bible verses that we dress up our sinful actions and desires. And he sees the intent of the heart. Just like in the previous episode, when the people of God are going into battle, they lose the battle, and what do they try to do? Let's bring the ark into the, into the battlefield. Never mind what the Lord wants. Never mind that we lost because of our own sinfulness. We, we won't have any of that humbling ourselves and repenting. Let's bring the, the ark. Never mind praying, seeking the Lord's face. And that's what they do, even here. There is a problem. Let's not be, let's, let's, let's give, uh, I was going to say uh, to the devil with Sue, but let's uh, give, uh, give uh, them some, some uh, bonus points. They, they saw the problem. The problem is there. The leadership uh, is waning, uh, is no longer going to be capable of ruling them for many years. And, they, and there is a problem with, because the enemies are still there. But their solution is wholly completely inadequate. They don't wait upon the Lord. And that's the, that mirrors our own, if I may draw an application here, uh, that mirrors the way we so often do things, both personally and as, uh, as congregations. How many situations we've seen over the years where churches, uh, seeing a problem, diminishing attendance, seeing the, the problem of uh, lack of funds, seeing the problem of whatever it is. Instead of turning to the Lord in his word and in prayer, they go and they mimic exactly what the world does. You know what we should do? We should uh, use that stratagem, that, that, that process, that, 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 uh, that strategy to grow our market share. We adopt corporate tactics for outreach, for promotion of our 
of our effort, of our services, for, for our service deliveries, for in our sermon preparation. solution to that problem is not abandoning the path but it's sticking to it how often the failure of what is distinctly the uh, divine movement is made the excuse for introducing what is distinctly of the world we may thus escape some difficulties that rise in the path of faith but we eventually plunge ourselves into greater and bring upon ourselves the displeasure of the Lord they saw a problem they correctly assessed it dissatisfied with the present mode of government that God was their king they desired to be like the other nations the desire to abandon the, the uniqueness of their calling as a people unto the Lord as a special people unto the Lord and they sold this prerogative they sold it for a plate of lentils or they were trying to sell it for a plate of lentils as we'll see actually God is more gracious than we could ever imagine that even this rebellious sinful desire God does not reject them completely as we'll see in the coming weeks but that's what they did what they should have done seeing the problem with Samuel's old age seeing the problem with, with his uh, sons was to pray was to come to Samuel and say we need to pray, we need to find God's guidance in this, we need to wait uh, for God to show us the way to follow that is always the more difficult way because it involves soul searching humility it involves repentance so what does the prophet do what does Samuel do faced with this verse 6 tells us he goes and prays isn't a wonderful thing with this situation that certainly would have uh, put most of us in, in, a, in, a, in into a tailspin faced with this situation that was clearly taken as a criticism of himself as he took it it wasn't just another day in the office for him imagine how he felt just been called old I devoted my life to serving God and this people and now they reject me 
and they criticize me and they criticize my family, you probably felt deeply unsettled, even wronged. So what does he do? Does he lash out in a thunder of a thousand curses and insults at them? Those stiff-necked people? No. Did he harbor resentment? Doesn't seem like it. He goes down on his knees and he prays. Exemplifying for us that highest godly character that he has had throughout his life. That we too should have when we face those difficulties. I was reading this wonderful thing just before the, the service six. I mean, aren't you rewarded some of it? But I think something of this sentiment must have gone through Samuel's head. From every stormy wind that blows, from every swelling tide of woes, there is a calm, sure retreat. It is found beneath the mercy seat. Oh, whither could we go for aid, when tempted, desolate, or dismayed? Or how the host of hell defeat at suffering saints no mercy seat? That's what he did. Where did he go with this burden that he could not carry? He took it to the one who had the shoulders to carry it. He went and told him who knows all things. He rolled his cares upon him. He went to the one who can cast a heavenly light on the darkest of earthly problems. And the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him. I like how Matthew Henry puts it. Matthew Henry said this, Samuel was a man of much in prayer. And we are encouraged in everything to make our requests known to God. When anything disturbs us, it is our interest as well as our duty. It is our interest, so good for us, but it is also our obligation, our duty, to show before God our trouble. And he gives us leave to be humbly pleased with him. So Samuel comes, the prophet's prayer, and lastly, there is a prescribed proclamation. God's response and direction. Those in dire straits, says again Matthew Henry, seek to God, those that in dire straits seek to God shall find him nigh unto them and ready to direct them. That's what, that's what happens here with Samuel. The Lord responds and he says something that is actually surprising. He says, heed their voice. Isn't that surprising? This was so displeasing in Samuel's eyes. This was so clearly a wrong action on the part of the Israelites. But when the, he comes to the Lord, the Lord gives this surprising shepherd answer. Heed their voice. Obey their voice. He, listen to what they're saying. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. And it's radical, uh, a radical surprise. There is a, another surprise. Not only that God sees that they're doing evil, that God allows them to, to 
pursue this path, but there is a mark of grace here. He tells them, solemnly warn them. Only solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king will reign over them. Oh yes, they want a king to rule over them like all the nations. Tell them the kind of king they are coming to. Show them the kind of king that will be set over them. Is that what they want? A king after their own fancy, as we'll see, the tall one. Show them. Incidentally, God didn't completely abandon them when he allowed them to, to do this. As we'll see in Samuel 12, actually God then tells them, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the, the Lord to make him his people. He did not forsake them completely, but for a season, very much reminiscent of, of the language of Romans 1, he hands them over to their own godless ways. And again, here I, I quote from Matthew Henry, those that set their hearts inordinately upon anything in this world ought for the moderating of their desires to consider the inconveniences as well as the conveniences that will attend it. If you want something that is inordinate, you need to consider not only the benefits, but the, 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 the troubles that will come to you. Those that submit to the government of the world and the flesh are told plainly what hard masters they are. You want to go after sin? Be known to this. this the, the, the wages of sin is death. The tyranny of the dominion, Matthew Henry says, of sin is, and yet, and yet they will exchange God's government for it. It is a mark of God's uh, goodness that he warns us, that he tells us. It is a mark of his graciousness that he orders Samuel to tell the Israelites what they are about to get themselves into, into what servitude and slavery they are about to submit themselves. consider a little bit more of that next week when we come to this passage of the, the sermon title is be careful what you wish for and that's very much what they wanted and that's what they got but for us brethren we need to consider the application of this passage first of all we learn don't we let me i won't expand a lot on this but we learn that being uh, god's uh, children uh, god has sons but he has no grandchildren no grand, uh, he has children, but he has no grandchildren. No matter how righteous our fathers or our mothers may be, each of us is accountable to God. Samuel was a righteous, righteous man. He was a godly, godly man. As few godly men have ever walked like him in this world. And yet his children, his children were, were certainly not following in his footsteps. of believers there may, there may be endless generations in your family of Christians or you may be the first Christian in your family it doesn't matter does it with God it's only the personal that matters you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling your own salvation but perhaps the, the greatest uh, application of this passage for us is the peril of conforming to 
Israelites. The Israelites wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. They, 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 as often we do in the church, we have the same desire. We want to, to be like the others. We want to be accepted. We want to fit into the, like the others. We want, don't want to be the, the, the sore thumbs sticking out in our families, in our, in our workplaces. Well, we don't want to. The cry of the Israelites was very much that cry in essence, a craving to conform rather than to stand as a peculiar people for God. And for us, we are the clear commandment. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is a, uh, I often don't like paraphrases. Uh, there's some paraphrases that are overly interpretative. They're not biblical translations. They're, they are there is one, I think it's the, the Living Translation, which the author translates this verse, and I think he, he captures it. Do not be pressed into the mold of this world, because that's what the language is. You get pressed into the mold of the world. Do not be pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Both as a church, congregationally, we need to bear this in mind, but even individually. We need to be careful with the kinds of things we watch on TV. YouTube or on, on, on social media. We need to be careful with the companies we keep, not to sit in the circle of scoffers. We need to be careful with the kind of political social stances we adopt. Sometimes I remember this clearly uh, being the case uh, back in 2020, not to do with the pandemic, this case, but to do with the, with the, with the, some of these rumors that came out uh, after the, the unjust, brutal murder of that of that man in America, George Floyd. Some of these movements, particularly the the BLM uh, movement, I hope that here it was very uh, uh, ripe in one of the the aspects that they addressed, and many Christians were. solve their problems, but they missed the point. They already had. They already had God himself as their king who fought their battles up until death and would fight their battles if, even if they didn't have a judge. If they were only humble and brokenhearted. In our lives as well, brethren, we face trials, we face tribulations, we face insecurities, and we must not forget in the Lord, Solomon says, with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, 
and he shall direct your paths. You know, if any of us lack wisdom, that's the problem of the Israelites, that's our problem. If any of us lacks wisdom, James says, ask of it. Let him ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach. He gives freely and he will be given. Ultimately, brethren, the question for us is who is our king? Who do we submit to? The Israelites wanted a king to lean upon, to lead them. A king like the other nations, they rejected the king that, uh, the king that God uh, was over them. They were unwilling to wait for God's chosen one. In fact, that is what they did throughout history. To, 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 to Moses, to, to, uh, to Aaron. That's what they did to the prophets. That's what they did to our Lord Jesus Christ. We will not have him ruling over us. We'd rather have a mortal rather have earthly systems ruling over us. We'd rather look at the, at the up-and-coming uh, politician to be our savior, to bring us security. But we are better than that one. We know because we reflect him, but because of God and condescending, we open our eyes and see. We know that there is a king. Not a king like the kings of this world, but a king that was chosen by God himself that brings his reign over us. The New Testament begins with the king, the kind of king that God wanted all along. Not a king like the, the kings uh, of, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the Mesopotamian region, of that Middle Eastern region that were uh, overbearing and master, uh, mastering, enslaving uh, their, their subjects, but a king who came to be served. A king who came to not to wear a crown of, of diamonds and, and gold, and, but a king who came to wear a crown of thorns. He went to the cross to die for his people, not to lord it over them. And the question is, will you submit to the kingship of this king? Will you rely on him you so desperately need not on wealth or relationships or, or moralism or your own strength or your own understanding or your own wisdom because in all of that you will end up disappointed just like the Israelites will end up disappointed in a couple of chapters back or ended up disappointed in this one in Christ we find a ruler that does not disappoint that does not fail that does not break his promises that does not uh, uh, stumble that does not lose a battle we'll find one who will never disappoint you will always keep you safe and secure in his omnipotent hand do you trust him do you trust him because as we come to the Lord's table the question for ourselves is to examine who we are 